our prayer that he will hold us fast because we know that if our salvation were up to us, we'd lose it. Um, but our Savior says no one will snatch us from the Father's hand. Over the past few Sundays, we've been chronicling ourselves or chronicling the, the, the life of Paul, particularly Paul's journey as it will take him to Rome to preach the gospel. You recall last Sunday in chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord appeared to Paul at night and, and reinforced Paul's calling and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This journey began in Acts chapter 21, and is really going to carry us through the end of this book all the way to chapter 28. And when Paul had arrived in Jerusalem, his time there was short because he was quickly seized by the Jews. He was beaten and he was later imprisoned. And these events that occurred as he was seeking to bring an offering and worship in the temple, they led to him being put on trial. And a trial that if found guilty would result certainly in his execution. However, in God's providence, Paul's life has been preserved. Ironically, though, it's been preserved through the Roman government. If you know anything about the Roman government, Rome was a pagan empire. It was ruled under Caesar who called himself Lord, and get this, even Son of God. You'd find even on their coins Caesar's face and it would say Son of God. And so this government who bowed the knee to Caesar was protecting the one who bowed the knee to the true Lord and Son of God, Jesus Christ. And they were preserving this one. And last Sunday we looked at chapter 23 where, where Paul stood before a biased court in the Sanhedrin. These included the Jews, the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Ananias, the high priest. Yet again, as things got out of hand, it was Lysisius, the Roman tribune, who came to Paul's rescue. And then when, when a, an assassination plot was uncovered by none other than Paul's nephew, a young little boy, Lysisius ensured Paul's protection. He escorted Paul out of Jerusalem with 470 soldiers, bowmen, and horsemen ultimately taking him to Caesarea where he could receive a fair trial before the Roman governor, Felix. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. But as we've journeyed through here, we've seen Paul time and time again uh, on the defense. And this will be the third time we'll see Paul give a defense for his ministry. The first time was two Sundays ago in Acts chapter 22 when Paul stood before all the people, the great mob that tried to beat him and kill him. And then yesterday, or yesterday, last Sunday, in Acts chapter 23, Paul gave a defense before the Sanhedrin. And now here in Acts chapter 24, Paul stands before Felix the governor. And again, he's going to give a defense. And as we've been journeying through these passages, I've sought to, to draw out particular themes because in reality, Paul's doing the same thing every week, isn't he? He's standing before a new group of people, and they're bringing their charges against him, and why he's a troubler of Israel, why he's causing problems, he's causing sedition, he is causing uprising, and Paul is saying, no, 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 I'm just here to serve you, and I'm preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in order to keep us from being redundant, I've tried to, to draw out different themes that have been emphasized in each of these defenses. The first theme that we saw in, in, in Paul's first defense was Paul's unwavering trust in the providence of God. He understood that God's will would be done, that God was accomplishing his purposes, even when it looked dire for Paul. And so, trusting in the providence of God, Paul could confidently, with composure, address the crowds and boldly preach Christ. 
That theme is, is carried all the way through, we'll see it, even into chapter 28. The second theme that we looked at was last Sunday, and we saw that, that Paul was um, putting his proclamation of the re- resurrection. And Paul says to uh, this Sanhedrin, to this group, he says, we know why I'm really here. The reason I'm on trial is because of the hope of the resurrection and that, that Paul was preaching a hope that was not of this world. And that's why he could let go of the things of this world. He was not trying to fight back to get his own, to, to vindicate himself. No, his hope was in the resurrection and that was the hope that he was offering to the world. Well, This morning I want us to focus on the theme of Paul's commitment to a clear conscience to a clear conscience. You see this in our passage in verse 16. Acts 24, verse 16, Paul says when he's on defense, he says, so I always take great pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. Paul even said this in his second defense before Ananias, before he got punched in the side of the face, you remember? It says 23, verse 1, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in, a, in all good conscience up to this day. He didn't get very far after that. They struck him on the mouth. But see, as Christians, we are to be those who live before God and man with a clear conscience. Notice here in, in verse 16, Paul says, I, I take great pains to have a clear conscience. This word means to train, to apply oneself, to study diligently, to strive with all your might. And Paul went to great um, ends to have a clear conscience before people. In other words, Paul was a, a man of principle. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of virtue. And the same should be true for Christians. We are to be a people of virtue, of character, of integrity, of principle. In fact, Paul exhorts believers throughout his letters to have a clear conscience. And I just want to draw your attention to a few of these. If you would, let's turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 13. We're going to be here in about a month, but here's just a little sneak peek. Paul's writing to the Christians in Rome, who are no doubt under Roman rule, this pagan rule, a rule that does not support anything Christian. But I want you to look at what he instructs them to do. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, the government... Even this pagan government has been instituted by God. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Meaning, you break the law, you're going to incur judgment. You're going to be put in jail or worse. Verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. But look at verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection to who? The government. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of what? conscience so there's this element that you are to have a clear conscience before the authorities go on to first timothy we're going almost to paul's last letters first timothy chapter one and paul explains to young timothy kind of the ethic the the motive the the grounds behind his ministry And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, The aim of our charge, 
our, our, our duty, our, our instruction from the Lord, our ministry. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. A good conscience. This is why in verse 18 of that same chapter, Paul will then tell Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a what? A good conscience. Paul mentioned this one more time in, in 1 Timothy when he's speaking to deacons, those who serve in the church in a leadership capacity. And he says to them in chapter 3, verse 9, that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So what does it mean to have a clear conscience? What does Paul mean here in Acts 24 when he says, I take great pains... I go to great ends to have a clear conscience before God and man. What is he talking about? Well, this is the way I would summarize it. To minister or to serve in the name of Christ with a clear conscience is to seek the well-being of our fellow man while maintaining a fidelity to the instruction of our Lord. If you're taking notes, let me say it again. To minister with a clear conscience is to seek the well-being of our fellow man while maintaining a fidelity to the instruction of our Lord. And here in Acts chapter 24, we're going to see through the example of Paul's life what this looks like. What this looks like to have a clear conscience before men and a clear conscience before God. Let's come to Acts 24 now. It's been five days, verse 1, after the high priests and, and, and the high priest Ananias came down with some of the elders and spokesmen, and one, Tertullus. This is a new individual we haven't seen yet. Tertullus, as we see here, helps them lay their case against Paul. Verse 2, Tertullus comes and begins to accuse Paul. Verse 1, it says he's a spokesman. Your, some of your translations might, translations might even say attorney. He's a prosecuting attorney. That's the equivalent of what Tertullus is. This is now the, the second time the high priest is coming to bring charges against Paul, but now they're not on their turf. They've had to move away from Jerusalem, and, and now they're into Caesarea, where they have to, to, to bring a case before Felix, who, as I shared with you last Sunday, they haven't been on the best of terms with. This is not the one, the judge, that they wish to have rule the case. And so they're like, hey, we, we've got to step up our game a little bit. We, we need to hire an attorney. We need to get... Tertullus, we've seen his commercials, we've seen his billboards. He says, you will not lose with me. And so they called him up and says, Tertullus, we have a case for you. So they've upped their game. And they, what they need to do is they need to seek to discredit Paul and get him handed over for execution. So let's look at what's the case that Tertullus musters up against Paul. It's, it's the same thing, but what I want us to see really is how Tertullus does this as he represents the Jewish authorities, and I want us to see that they are not principled men. They are not presenting a case with a clear conscience, as Paul later will do. Tertullus comes forward and he begins with a, a greeting. He wants to, like any good attorney, get the judge on his side and so he wants to butter him up a little bit. And he says to, Tertull, or to Felix, Since through you we have enjoyed much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere we accept with all gratitude. But to today you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Well, this isn't really true. They don't like Felix. They don't enjoy peace under Felix. 
He is appealing, yes, with respect, but this is exaggerated flattery. Tertullus, like a good attorney, has, has taken some things, and you might be able to find some positive elements of, of Felix's rule for the Jews in this period, and, and he's spun them, and let's forget about all the, the mountains of negative things that are going on. And he goes on, he says, we've, mu- we've enjoyed much peace because of your foresight, your, your wisdom, you've been able to see things politically and you have brought great stability to our nation. Well, there was this one time, there was a, 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 a ringleader named Eleazar who had risen up and he had a, a, a group of bandits who were leading an insurrection. They had for 20 years... And Felix came in with, with a, an iron fist and, and, and put an end to this group. He ended up crucifying countless numbers of those who joined in, his, in this man Eleazar's um, uprisings. This was a positive thing. He had, in some sense, brought some peace. But the great Jewish historian says that even though he eliminated Eleazar, that there were many other bandits that rose up and took his place that he yet has done anything about. So yes, in some sense, he brought peace for a short period of time, but, but it was not lasting very long. See, Felix, he rose to power from being a slave. I, I mentioned this last Sunday. He was a slave, but he had experienced some extraordinary favor and circumstances, and he rose all the way up into political power. But because of his humble upbringing, and probably because of the shame that that brought, he kind of overcompensated for his heritage. This resulted in him living in pomp, in arrogance, in excess of every kind. He was one of those people you would see on People's Magazine who has risen from rags to riches, but he is just living lavishly. And he is of utmost arrogance and pomp. He even, in his arrogance, would misuse authority. And and this misuse of authority increased, actually, the hostility between the Jews and the Roman government. He did not bring peace. He brought unrest, instability in this nation. But nevertheless, Tertullus strokes his ego. He says, I'm not going to keep you too long. I'm just going to beg in your kindness, verse 4, which knowing he does not have that, to hear us briefly. So now the charges begin to be laid against Paul. Charge number one, verse five. For we have found this man a plague. This man is a disease. Well, in what way? This is how. He's one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Okay. So charge number one. Oh, excellent, Felix, we know how you've handled Eleazar. Well, here's another one like him. He stirs up riots and trouble. He is a disease that is infecting this nation, and we know that you keep the peace, and so we want you to continue to do so. It's interesting here that they say not only is he stirring up riots amongst all the Jews, but he does this throughout all the world. And no doubt they're probably picking up on an element of truth here. Any good attorney takes a little bit of truth and and brings it out and and makes the most of it. And what have we seen through Paul's journey through the Gentile world? He shows up, he preaches at the synagogue, some believe, most do not, a riot ensues, they beat him, they run him out, he goes to the Gentiles, he preaches that there are no God but one, the temples made with gods are no gods, and what happens? A riot ensues, and they beat him, and then he goes to the next town and put repeat on 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 the DVD player. We'll do this again. And no doubt they've picked up, they know some of these things about Paul, and they say, this is what he does everywhere. And and, and you might say, you know what? When there's smoke, there's fire. Everywhere this guy goes, there is trouble. 
Maybe there's something up to these charges. Not only is he one who stirs up riots, but he's a ringleader. A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Felix was not governor when Christ was, or before Christ was crucified. He did not oversee the crucifixion of Christ. But no doubt they're conjuring up. You remember that troubler of Israel, Jesus, the Nazarene? whom the Roman government saw as a rival king to Caesar, and the Roman government crucified him? Well, he's part of that group. He's now the new ringleader of the group. You can see, okay, this this case is not looking too good for Paul. He says he's a militant. He's, he's, He's like one of these troublers. And as I was looking at this, you, you see this sometimes, this type of talk even come up in news or in commentators or, or written pieces about Christians. Who are the troublers of the world? Radicals, right? Radical Islam is kind of the term. And, and what sometimes gets countered and lumped in, well, you know what? Christians are radicals too. And what is it that they're trying to, to, to paint a picture of? Well, if they take the Bible seriously, do you know what the Bible says? We need to watch out for them too. And you can kind of see how, hey, we get lumped in sometimes, not all of us, but and not everybody does this, but you can see how those type of charges would come up. We want to associate you with the bad guys. And that's what's happening to Paul. The third charge. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Well, that's convenient, Tertullus, because as I recall, you, yeah, you seized him, but then you tried to kill him. And in fact, Tertullus probably wasn't there. He was on the call. He had uh, many other cases. You know, someone had a broken neck after a car wreck. He was after that guy. But he goes on with the story. They seized him. We took care of him. Not mentioning facts, no, actually one of uh, the Roman tribunes, Lysisius, actually came and stopped us from breaking Roman law. Doesn't mention that. He came in trying to profane the temple, meaning he was breaking our laws. We stopped him. And he concludes his case and he says to Felix, well, by examining yourself, you're a smart guy, Felix. You've, you've handled the affairs of governing over this region so well that I'm sure when you examine this, Paul, you will find everything that we have accused him to be true. And then in verse 9, the Jews also join in, and they, they bring in their charges. Luke doesn't recount those. You could just go back to verse, or chapter 23. They, they appeal to Felix, and they presented a skewed case. They're lying. They don't have a clear conscience. They're not principled men. They're doing whatever it takes to get their way, and they appeal to a crooked governor and his ego, and they say, we're sure that you will agree with us. Let's see what Paul says, and let's see how does he respond in such a situation when, when charges are brought against him, when, when things are skewed, when things are twisted, does he lose his cool? Does he skew the evidence for himself? Does he try to shy away from the things that are charged against him? Or does he stand up with a clear conscience? We see that in verse 10 that the governor had nodded to him to speak. Uh, imagine... You've heard Tortolis sit down, and Felix turns to the other room and just kind of gives him one of these. And Paul knows it's my turn. So Paul comes forward, and, and like Tertullus, he understands I must be respectful. I need to start off on a good foot. But, but notice that Paul doesn't give himself to exaggerated flattery. Look at what Paul says to Felix. He says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. He kept it very general. He kept to the facts. You are greatly experienced, O Felix. 
you've been doing this for many years. I'm glad to defend my case before you. That's it. He doesn't go in buttering them up. Oh, you look great today. You know, you, have you lost some weight, Felix? My, last time I saw you, wow, you've changed. And I see uh, your, your wife, I've heard that. I know it's your third one, but, but she, is, she is stunning, and, and she's not even half your age. Well done, sir. We'll talk about that in just a moment. No, he doesn't get into that. He just states the obvious. You have been doing this for many years. I'm here to make my case. And so what's the case? He goes through and he, he initially rebuts all these things. He says, Felix, you can verify, verse 11, that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Now, why is he telling him this? Why is he giving him a timeline of events? Because here's the deal. Tertullus and Ananias and the Jews' case brought before them is purely circumstantial and has no eyewitness testimony. And Paul says it hasn't even been 12 days since this event, and they can't manage to bring one single eyewitness before you? That's the point. Of course they don't want to do that, because when you get eyewitness testimony, it gets messy. You remember even in Jesus' trial, they would bring people, and they did not have the same story, but then they just had to kind of go with it. He said he's a king, let's go with that. He's rising up against Caesar. No more witnesses. Well, they've tried to limit what Felix, the information that Felix has by not bringing any witnesses. And, and so Paul goes for them and just says they have no witnesses, which actually could bring great trouble upon them for bringing a case all the way up to Felix the governor without the proper proof. To bring a frivolous case brought trouble. And so Paul says that you can verify it. Go look at the facts. I haven't been here that long. Verse 12, not only that, they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Paul says, it's not true. I was not trying to defame the, the temple. I was not stirring up crowds, which is interesting here. And I think is instructional for us as Christians. Because in our world, we are a world who, who says, stir up trouble to get your cause known. Cause a, a fuss. Get things riled up. And then people will pay attention to your cause. But Paul says, no, that's not what I do. I don't go in. You didn't find me disputing with people. You didn't find me gathering a crowd, trying to get people on my side so that we could go in and cause trouble. I think this is instructional for us. Because I know when we get passionate about something, right? We want people to know. And sometimes it is tempting to get kind of attention flares going so that we can, can draw attention to our cause and, 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 and show the world we will not stand for this, right? Paul says, I don't, I don't do that. I didn't stir up a crowd. I wasn't found disputing, arguing with people. And then he he says, verse 13, and neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Meaning they, they have no witnesses. This is all circumstantial. But verse 14 is a bombshell. But this I confess. What? The defendant is about to confess in court. You can just see the newspaper headlines, right? Coming out, defendant confesses. Paul doesn't deny everything they said. And here we're beginning to see what it looks like to have a clear conscience, not only before men, hey, I am not a troubler. You can look at my life. But he also has a clear conscience before God. It would be so tempting for him to say, and I am not a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. I have no idea what you're talking about. 
in a sense, he could deny Christ like Peter did. He could try to get around this, but he says, no, I will confess to something. That according to the way which they call a sect, so he he doesn't exactly affirm their charges. They call it a sect. He says, according to the way, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Here's what Paul does. This is what it looks like on the sense of having a clear conscience before God. He has sound orthodoxy. What does that mean? Good theology, right belief. And he, and he spells out to them what this right belief means. I worship God, I believe the Scriptures, and my hope is in the resurrection. So worship, belief, and hope. He spells it out. What is his worship? He worships according to the way, he says. I worship the God of our fathers. They're calling me this, this kind of fringe group, this radical group. No, no, no. I worship according to the way, which is very significant. On one level, Christians were at this time sometimes called the way. Paul even persecuted those who belonged to the way. Well, why were Christians being called the way? Well, this comes actually from the prophet Isaiah. Who, who promises the day when God's deliverance will come, that Israel will walk along the steady way, the way of holiness and the way into the promises of God. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus, as Jesus confessed, is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the true group who follows Messiah. We are the true people of God. We're not some sect, some fringe group. That is not true. We worship according to the way. And it's interesting here that Paul confesses Christ before men. And I want us to look in in Matthew chapter 10. I want you to look at what Jesus says about this. And this is what it looks like to have a a clear confession before God. To have a, a firm conviction of what we believe. So much so that you're willing to confess it to the world. Jesus speaks to the apostles and he he warns them that persecution is going to come, that you're going to be brought before rulers and kings. But in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, look at what Jesus says. Jesus says to them, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What is he saying here? All their hiddenness, all their lying, all their skewing, it will be made known because God knows all things, which is why we want to have a clear conscience. He goes on, Jesus says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. What he's talking about here is that at this time before Jesus was crucified, he kept the true identity of who he was in some sense secret amongst the disciples, but he says the day is going to come where what is in secret is needing to be proclaimed on the rooftops. Verse 28, do not fear those who killed the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Look at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What does it look like to have a clear conscience? Yes, I I seek the well-being of my fellow men, but I, I also do this with infidelity to the instructions of my Lord, and I will confess him before men. And this is exactly what Paul does. He goes on, he says, not only do I worship our God according to the way, but I believe the Scriptures. In our day and age, there is a shame that comes involved with believing the Scriptures. You actually believe this? Do you know what it says? Yes, I've read it. And you believe this? Yes, yes. And what's your hope in? My hope's in the resurrection. Why? Your hope is in the resurrection? Dead don't rise. Yes, they do. Jesus rose from the dead. 
And after stating his beliefs, his commitments, these are my motives, you might put it this way. This is what makes me tick. I'm a worshiper, I'm a believer, and I'm a hoper. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience, both with God and men. Well, his orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Orthopraxy means good practice. If you have a good theology, if you rightly believe, if you're rightly having a clear conscience before God, you will rightly deal with your fellow men. This is what Jesus said, love neighbor and love God. And so he goes on and he says, verse 17, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. You want to know why I was here? I was bringing money to give to this people. Paul knew tensions were high because of his ministry with the Gentiles and even with the Jerusalem church, that there was, there was a misunderstanding about bringing these filthy, dirty Gentiles into the people of God. And, and Paul goes forward and he says, hey, we're going we're gonna to do something, churches. And he goes to all these churches and he says, hey, I want you to know the reason you believe is because of the believers in Jerusalem who sent us out. They're in trouble. And so let's collect an offering, and I'm going to take it to Jerusalem and give it to them so that it will benefit the people who live there. You want to know why I was here? It was not to defile the temple. It was coming to bring alms for this nation. He moves on to present offerings, and this is likely referring to in chapter 21, where when Paul joins up with the with the. The, the other men who have taken a vow and they've shaved their heads and they've taken a Nazarite vow and they're, they're going to come into the temple and they're going to offer sacrifices. Paul joined in with them. He purified himself uh, according to their customs and their rituals and their rules so that he would not be an offense to anybody. He says, I came to bring offerings. Verse 18, and while I did this, they found me purified far from defiling the temple without any crowd or tumult. Here's what I want you to see about this. Paul came out of service. You want to look at my life? This is what it looks like to have a clear conscience before men. I come to serve others. So when you look at my life, and this is what I hope that people would say when they look at, at the lives of the people who, who attend Oak Park Baptist Church, you know what? They serve others. Not just themselves, but others outside. Oh, it is evident by their actions that they are not troublemakers. He goes on and he says, he's found purified in the temple. And I mentioned this, he, he was keeping the rules, he was keeping the laws. In other words, Paul did not resort to sinful means to accomplish holy purposes. This is what the so-called Jewish leaders were trying to do. Hey, we will do whatever it takes, even an assassination attempt to get rid of someone who we think is unholy. Paul doesn't do that. And what we see here is that Paul is a good citizen. And this is where I would encourage us, and, and I don't really, for the most part, see us not being these, but it's a good reminder that Paul, he, he didn't have to. He was free from the law, but yet he put himself under the law to win many to Christ. And really, as the world looks at us, as, as our government officials, as, as Mike Moore, our mayor, looks at us, as, as Mike Pence, whatever he does now as governor, you know, as he looks at us, they should see Christians as the best of citizens. They are submissive to authorities. They are never breaking the boundaries of the law. This should be said of those of us who are businessmen. You know what? They, they conduct business with integrity. should be said of us as neighbors that no one would say, you know what? That guy is the worst neighbor. He is such a pain. He, does, he never follows the HOA rules. He never takes care of his stuff. They shouldn't say that say of you as a student, you know what, this is a model student. Maybe not because your grades are great, but you're not a punk in class, you know? 
That, that student's always respectful, always kind, even if that teacher's antagonistic toward Christianity. We, we sometimes think if someone's antagonistic, we have the right to be antagonistic back. No. If you rent, are you a model tenant doing everything that your landlord asks you to do? Even if he's a horrible landlord or she's a horrible landlord. Paul says, look at my life, I'm not a rule breaker. He says, the only thing that you're going to be able to accuse me of, in verse 21, is this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. The only thing these guys have ever seen me do is say that. So, there's the charges. And what time we have left, I want you to see Felix's response. Actually, before we do that, I want you to see that Paul's life, his clear conscience before God and man, actually preserves him. The charges can't stick. It actually is going to give him, as we're going to see, greater opportunity for witness because there is something different about him. They see, he, he, Felix is going to see these charges, and he, like Tertullus uh, asked, he examines Paul, but yet it is not clear. This is a man of principle. This is a man of integrity. He is a man of virtue. And he's going to see that even though he himself is not. Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, Felix was a knowledgeable governor. He knew about this Christian movement. He put them off, which, here's what he said, he dismissed the court. That's what happened. Saying, when Lysicius, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. Here's what's happening. Felix is not a man of principle. He has no backbone. I mean, the case is clear. Paul is not a troubler. But he doesn't want to make the decision. That's probably why he hasn't actually brought peace to Judea. Because he can't make decisions. He's a good politician. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth. And he says, okay, I'm going to put this off. I'm going to wait till Lysicius, the only actual eyewitness, comes. Well, he's already got a letter from him detailing what has happened. This is not because he's trying to figure out the case further. It is because he doesn't want to make a decision. Because he's in a bind. Because popular opinion does matter when you're a politician. He doesn't like the Jews, but he's got to keep them in some sense liking him at some level. But he knows he's in a bind because Paul is a Roman citizen. And he doesn't want Paul reporting him for mistreating a Roman citizen. So what does he do? He's caught between... I don't know what he's caught between these, but he's caught. He can't make a decision. So he gave orders to the centurion that, he, that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. He doesn't want Paul to be mistreated. That none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. But Felix isn't done with Paul. Look in verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Drusilla, you heard me mention, she was Felix's third wife. She was, in all intents and purposes, a trophy wife. She's 19 at this time. Felix, I don't know how old he is, but he's old. When Felix took office as governor of Judea, Drusilla was 14. She was about to be married, but Felix saw her at her wedding. And he used a magician named Simon from Cyprus to maneuver her into dissolving her marriage. This is what he did in order that she might marry him. This is fitting with Felix's arrogance and pomp. I want her, and I will do whatever I want to get her. And he turns to a magician who, I don't know what the guy did, but somehow it worked. 
He deceived her and saying, hey, don't marry this young gun. Marry this old fart. You know, I don't know how that happened. But she's Jewish, and no doubt she, she's probably curious about this Paul. So they call him up. And they heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see how Paul's clear conscience presents him with opportunity? And I want you to see the sermon that he preaches is a dandy. This is awesome. And he reasoned about point number one, righteousness. Point number two, self-control. And point number three, the coming judgment. Paul was not ashamed. He took Jesus' word serious. Do not fear these men. It was said of the great Scottish reformer John Knox that he feared God so much that he feared no man. Well, that is seen, that same spirit is seen in the Apostle Paul as he stands before the governor who holds his life in the balance. And he reasons with him about righteousness. And I imagine he's, he's talking about his infidelity, their sexual immorality. He's like John the Baptist who stood before Herod and told him it is not right that you have taken Philip's wife. And that ended up causing John the Baptist ultimately to lose his head. But Paul is speaking to him about holiness, righteousness. And he says, and while I'm on that subject, let's talk about this, Mr. Felix, about your lack of self-control. You live in lavish pomp. And I want to tell you there is coming a day in which none of that will matter because Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, is going to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to judge you and your little princess too. He doesn't hold back. He's a man with a clear conscience. And notice what Felix's response is. Felix was alarmed. He was, he was fearful. Maybe you just hearing that little quip of me summarizing Paul's sermon, you, you're alarmed. And you're fearful. And I hope you don't respond like Felix does, who just like he couldn't decide Paul's case, can no longer, cannot decide a case for Christ. He says, go away for the present. I'm done. He says, I'm done listening to this man. Why? Because he feared what he said. He says to Paul, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Oh, how many people have said, when it's convenient, I'll bow the knee. God's been gracious to many of us who put him off for many years. Well, you don't know the day or the hour in which your life will be taken. Well, Paul went away, but Felix and his good character at the same time hoped that Paul would give him money. <laughs> he was hoping that Paul would offer a bribe. He was hoping that Paul wasn't a man of principle. I'll hold him long enough. I've heard he's got a good network that he's able to bring money well maybe he can bring some money my way maybe i'll hold him long enough and he'll just say hey you know how much would it be to just get this over with well, paul doesn't do that he doesn't resort to sinful means to accomplish holy ends nevertheless felix sent for him often verse 26 and conversed with him and this happened for two years for two years Jesus also said, when you stand before rulers, do not worry, before this is your opportunity to bear witness about me. Brothers and sisters, we want to be people with a clear conscience before our fellow men and a clear conscience before our holy God. And although the world may skew things, they, uh, things may not go right for us, but if we have a clear conscience, we will be able to give testimony to our Lord and Savior like Paul did. Even when it doesn't turn out your way. After those two years, Felix's time was up. It's time to retire. He was succeeded by Porticus Festus. But notice, he still has no backbone and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison in order to just get some political points because he knew he had not managed things well 
well, this is no sweat off my back. I'm out of here. We'll just leave Paul. It's been two years since the Lord whispered to Paul in the night in jail and said, take courage, Paul, for just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. And yet Paul remains steadfast to his Lord. That's what I want to call us to, to remain steadfast to our Lord, to be of good conscience before our coworkers, before our neighbors, before our family members, before those people we rub shoulders, before our governing officials. But that doesn't mean that we're silent because caring for their well-being also means that we speak clearly about the Lord whom we serve. Maybe you're here this morning, or, or maybe you've, you've been here Sunday after Sunday, and maybe you leave like Felix with your heart stirred. You leave here fearful, and you say, I've got to do something about it, but you quickly dissolve that fear by setting your mind upon other things. I want to appeal to you that it will never be more convenient than right now to come to Christ. And if you are stirred, do not harden your heart while the offer stands, for you do not know what tomorrow holds. And if you'd like to speak to a pastor, at the end of the service, we will be down here. Come speak to us, and we want to share with you, like Paul shared with Felix, about faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that we'd be a people with clean hands, with a pure heart, as Paul says, a clear conscience. That means we're, we're not out for our own, but we're out for the good of our fellow man. That means loving our enemies. That means loving you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who love God and love neighbor. And even if things are said about us that those charges can never stick. And even if we're prison, jailed, lose a job, misconstrued, those who watch us and how we respond, Lord, I pray that you would use our testimony, our life, our integrity, our principledness, our virtue, our ethics, our character to draw people to you. That they would say, I want to hear more why do you do what you do? What is the reason for the hope that you have? And Lord, may we be bold like Paul to declare this I confess, that we worship according to the way. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing as Jamin and the team leads us. Let's sing together. Great.